Now suppose there were one change that we could make to the way that we date ancient civilizations and the way that we have created a chronology of those civilizations that would have very radical cascading effects on everything. That is specifically the way we interpret ancient mythology. Suppose that Roman and Greek mythology, it's not just fanciful nonsense, but it actually has at least one foot in historical reality. In fact, not just Greek and Roman mythology, suppose even the Bible, even the book of Genesis, has, makes very specific claims about historical events that with this chronological change, we can now actually tie to archaeological evidence. That's a pretty radical thing, but that's what we're going to be talking about today in this new episode of your favorite yearly podcast, Not Related. <laughs> That's right. I'm I got to bring back not related. I got some things to talk about. I said at the beginning of this year um, that I have every intention of not doing YouTube by the end of this year. So we got to get off YouTube. Go to notrelated.xyz. That is the podcast's website. What is the podcast about? For those of you who are new, it's about every, uh, the reason it's called not related is because every single one of them is different. Okay. They all talk, talk about important topics that are sometimes a little deep into, I guess, scholarly issues, uh, but they don't get the attention they deserve. Um, and today I'm actually going to be talking about a revised chronology, the so-called new chronology associated with the Egyptologist David Roll. That's R-O-H-L. Uh, so David Roll is an interesting guy. I guess I should talk about him as a, a person first, because maybe it'll explain. You know, I'll, I'll give this speech before I even get into it. When it comes to academia, one of the worst things about it is that it creates very mediocre people. People who are interested in, uh, you know, who are interested in shuffling details, shuffling paper, and are very afraid to make, uh, I, I guess, uh, insightful or radical uh, changes to the way we look at things. And in the case of history, history is a good example because I think a lot of people, you know, you look things up in a history book and you expect that everything is going to be based in, you know, solid stone. But more often than not, a lot of the views that we have of history are very much based on plausibility judgments and uh, I guess kind of empty arguments and a lot of it is made from ignorance. So historical chronology and role is a good example of this, but historical chronology is a good place where you can make pretty radical changes and you can actually still work with basically all the data. In fact, often solve for more and more, uh, I guess, unexpected events. Okay. Now, Roll himself, I forget exactly, he was doing his PhD in something. I, I gotta give a brief biography of the guy to understand him, but uh, uh, he, he's always been interested in Egyptology. He was doing a PhD in something, but his, his topic was so interesting that some book company wanted him to do write a book on it. So that's what he did. But then his uh, department said, hey, wait, you wrote a book on this. You can't do a dissertation. It has to be original work. It can't already be published. So... Uh, I think for the best, Roll quit academia, and he, found, he founded ISIS, <laughs> the Institute for the Study of Interdisciplinary Sciences. Um, and he's always been, I, I wouldn't call him fringe by any means. I, I don't think people call him fringe, but he's definitely the kind of guy who's willing, given his position, to uh, you know, promote pretty, I don't know, pretty crazy revisions. Uh, well, I don't want to say this is crazy, but I'll just say it's, um, it touches on a lot of things. Now, the boring side of this, uh, or at least it's going to sound boring in itself, but Roll basically says this. The way that we have dated the Egyptian New Kingdom period in particular is a little bogus. 
In essence, he says that around 300 or so, maybe 350 uh, years or so are bogus because, you know, really a couple dynasties that some people think are sequential are actually actually occurred at the same time. Um, and there are some other reinterpretations of dates. He makes a bunch of little changes. And for most people who aren't in Egyptology, that sounds pretty unimportant. But as I said at the very beginning, the interesting thing about Rolls' theory, and this is something he's very much run with, is this new chronology actually allows you to take a lot of the content of, let's say, the Bible and Greek mythology, and you can now actually put a very historic, like there's actually historical evidence for a lot of this stuff. So let's go ahead and start talking, let's start talking about the Bible, actually, because that, I guess, is, uh, uh, you know, something near and dear to a lot of people. But just to give a brief history of how people have looked at the Bible, this is hard to imagine, but hundreds of years ago, people in Europe actually believed in the Bible, like they were Christians. That's, I don't know, it seems like, um, it seems like totally counterfactual now. Uh, but back in the day, people, of course, assumed that uh, Genesis was more or less a pretty good history. You know, maybe some things were different, but, you know, that's how it is. You know, maybe creation wasn't exactly how it was in Genesis 1. You know, Augustine said that uh, maybe everything happened at once or, you know, maybe this is different and stuff like that. But in general, everyone just sort of assumed that the chronology of Genesis is more or less true. Now, here's where things get hairy. And this is what Roll is going to say is the big accident. In the Bible, um, when it talks about the Israelites living in Egypt, it talks about them uh, building a city called Ramses. Now, Roll, well, I'll say in conventional chronology, the assumption here is that, ah, well, that means that the Egyptians must have actually built this town, Ramses, um, which is created in the, in the New Kingdom period. It's named after the Pharaoh Ramses or Ramses II. Um, and so, therefore, the Bible is claiming that uh, the Israelites were in Egypt at this period, okay? Um, now, you can look through, you can compare this with other archaeological evidence, but we'll just go ahead and say that this, in this new, or in this older chronology, things don't really work out. For example, uh, I, don't, I don't know how many people are actually familiar with I, all of the biblical story, but I'll sum it up in, you know, 30 seconds. Um, uh, Joseph... Joseph of the coat of many colors, him and his brothers, they live in, you know, Canaan, but his jealous brothers sell him into slavery in Egypt. But in Egypt, he becomes, you know, very, he earns the uh, approval of Pharaoh and works for Pharaoh and becomes very rich and famous. And during a famine, his family moves out to Egypt. They live in Egypt for a long period. They are eventually enslaved. They escape with Moses. And then um, after Moses, Joshua and his friends lead a conquest of the promised land and stuff like that. And they destroy cities like Jericho and such. Now, the problem in traditional chronology, like if you're dating these things to the period of Ramses, for example, the, the there's no evidence of any Canaanites living in Egypt during this period. Now, you could say, well, maybe they were there, but, you know, they didn't leave evidence. But that, you know, you want there to be evidence, firstly. You sort of expect that a massive movement of people, that's, that's going to show up somewhere. Additionally, let's say the claim that uh, the Israelites destroyed Jericho. Well, that is utterly untenable because at the period of Ramses, Jericho had been destroyed for something like 300 years and it would stay destroyed for 300 years. So it's clear that if they are moving or if the Israelites are moving around at this period, they definitely didn't destroy Jericho. And there's no attestation that during this period, there's any kind of conquest going on in Canaan. It's just not historical. Right, so those are the problems of the traditional chronology. Now, Roll, in essence, says that, uh, you know, he, 
now his revision of the chronology is based on a couple different things. Uh, I, I should say in traditional chronology, there are other reasons they have for thinking, um, you know, the time is how it is. For example, there's a uh, uh, there's a character in the there's a pharaoh in the Bible, uh, Shishak, who is related to the Egyptian pharaoh Shoshank because they sound similar. That sort of that sort of matches up. Uh, it seems correct. Or am I getting those names reversed? I forget. Either way, so that is the reason we have this traditional chronology where the Egyptian or the Israelites live in Egypt in this very late period, uh, in the New Kingdom period, actually, during the Pharaoh Ramses II. Um, and th that's where that interpretation comes from. But there's really no evidence for things. Basically, if you assume that this is what the Bible is saying, you can't take the Bible very seriously about it because there's not really any kind of evidence for it. And there's good circumstantial evidence that this, this did not happen. So how does Roll's revision change this? Now, Roll's argument, now Roll, of course, basically says that the, uh, the Israelites, they really lived in Egypt, not in the New Kingdom period, but, you know, a couple hundred years earlier in the Middle Kingdom period. And uh, as for the original dating of, let's say, the creation of the town Ramses, well, Roll says, well, really, if you look at the town Ramses, it's actually built on top of another city called Avaris. And it's his claim that the uh, Israelites actually built and lived in this city, this city of Avaris. And um, it was only called Ramses in the Bible because at the time of the Bible's writing or editing later on, uh, no one knew of the city called Avaris. They knew of that region as, uh, you know, Ramses. So it was called that in the Bible. Um, but it, to roll, that's an issue of editing. Now, here's the nice thing about saying that the, the Israelites lived in Egypt during this period. Well, this settlement of Avaris has ample, overwhelming evidence that there are Canaanites living in the area. Um, the, in terms of the burials they have, in terms of they don't really have that many Egyptian traits. Like uh, while a lot of the cities, of, I mean, you know, it, Egyptian culture is all over the place. But in Avaris and several other places in that area of the Delta, this is sort of to the, I guess, eastern part of the, the Nile Delta. Um, there are there, there's very obvious uh, proof of Canaanite shepherds and Canaanite culture, uh, even some, you know, non, uh, you know, even Canaanite gods and other things like that and other kind of worship and stuff like that. So it's clear that there are actually lots of Canaanites of which, you know, Joseph and his friends could be the members. In fact, Roll, Roll goes so far, I don't know, maybe this is a little too much, but Roll goes so far as to say that there is at least one house in Avaris that is actually plausibly, that could plausibly be Joseph's house. And the reason he says that, it, this is honestly, this is the point where it's like honestly too good to be true in terms of, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, his theory. But basically he says there's a Canaanite house, a clearly Canaanite house that um, belongs to a man who is clearly promoted in the Egyptian ranks. That is, his house is remodeled to be a more Egyptian house and it has visiting chambers and it has dressing chambers and you can receive guests. So it's clearly someone like Joseph in the historical story becomes a, a, an important advisor to Pharaoh, sort of the second in command. And Roll has said, well, you know, this house sort of, it shows the, it really shows a biography of some kind of Canaanite who goes through the same kind of life story, right? Um, and additionally said, well, there's also like 12 main graves. Maybe it's like the 12 brothers or something like that, uh, which I think is a little more... Uh, circumstantial argument, but the interesting thing is one of the graves actually um, had uh, has a kind of statue 
of a Canaanite man with Canaanite hair and Canaanite, you know, painting and, and facial features and stuff like that. Uh, that actually has a multicolored coat, similar to Joseph. Now, that doesn't, isn't necessarily, uh, well, Roll actually argues that probably it could actually be Joseph. But uh, to be clear, a lot of the, the Canaanites of this period actually did have multicolor coats, but, uh, or at least, you know, uh, slightly colorful coats. They were simplified later in the New Kingdom period. Either way, um, Roll actually has even more to say about the Israelite sojourn in Egypt. He actually makes a claim. Okay, so for those who don't know, of course, you know, there's the Nile River in Egypt, right? It flows into the Mediterranean. Everyone knows this. flows northward. Um, there is also a basin on the side of the Nile River. You can see it. It looks like a giant lake called the Fayum Basin, right? Um, and part of the Nile actually moves out there, and there is a man-made canal that was actually built during the Middle Kingdom, during this time that we're talking about, that Roll's uh, revision puts the Israelites in this period. And Roll makes the following claim. For those who know about the biblical story, you will know that Joseph, of course, he gets in good with the Pharaoh when he interprets one of the Pharaoh's dreams that predicts that there will be seven years of plenty followed by a famine of seven years. And he says he's so happy with Joseph that he makes him second command in Egypt and puts him in charge of preparing for this terrible famine, right? Now, Roll says that, hey, there is actually a chance that this waterway that is invented, which actually to this day by Muslims is called uh, Bar Yosef, Joseph's waterway, it was actually built by the historical biblical Joseph. That is actually a possibility. Now, of course, the, the I should say the waterway, I don't think it's actually during all these centuries been called Joseph's waterway. I think that was something that Muslims adopted later on. But, you know, Roll is in essence a tribute, at least saying, hey, this is built around the period. And, you know, there's some plausible chance that it could have some, if there is some actual vizier of Egypt called Joseph, that he could have had something to do with it. Uh, now, Roll, I, I think, I will go ahead and say that I think Roll, uh, you know, I'm a Christian and Roll isn't, but I find it a little funny that he is very quick to just see anything in the Bible and automatically link it together and just like, I don't know. I, I'm just saying I think there are other possibilities, but it, I'll just say it does match up. Um, and he also notes that the pharaohs of those periods where there is, you know, allegedly this famine going on, they, uh, the, the monuments we have of them, the statues we have of them, they're depicted with sad faces and stuff like that, as if they're going through hard times. And actually the pharaoh of allegedly Joseph's period, if you believe Roll, he actually had his pyramid built on this waterway that was, you know, apparently built during his reign. So anyway, that's just something to think about. So th this is kind of what Roll does. Um, a lot of it is, whereas, you know, in the conventional chronology, you just have no reason to believe there's any kind of, uh, you know, Hebrews during this period or, or uh, you know, Canaanites or any, anyone from the region, Semites in general, uh, or in the New Kingdom period. But in the Middle Kingdom period, there's ample evidence all over the place. Um, and the interesting thing about the site of Avaris, and this is, Avaris is actually probably the most important uh, archaeological site for a lot of the things that uh, um, uh, Roll goes into because it's his claim. Well, it's not just his claim. It's actually what the site seems to show uh, and what other people think as well is that during this Middle Kingdom period, the uh, inhabitants actually move out suddenly, okay, which is actually consistent with the Bible, right? After the Exodus, uh, all the Israelites leave suddenly and not too much longer later, they are actually replaced by another group. 
um, called the Hyksos, actually. This is a, a well-known group in Egyptian history. In essence, these invaders, who actually are also from Canaan, they're a different group, um, but they come in and eventually establish rule over Egypt. It's a kind of, uh, they, they establish what historians nowadays call dynasties. But of course, Egyptians at the time thought of them as being kind of usurpers, uh, foreigners or stuff like that. Now, uh, the Hyksos actually have a lot to do with Rawls theory of, you know, Greek mythology and stuff like that. I might talk about that in a second. Uh, but just to keep on the Israelites for a bit. So as I said, you have this settlement of Israelites in Egypt at the period that Rawls suggests, you know, is the proper time. And they also leave at the proper time. And, you know, the biblical story goes they were wandering in the desert for 40 years ago, and then they started conquering uh, Canaan, okay? And the first city, of course, as I mentioned, is Jericho. Now, Jericho, uh, as, you know, alluded to before, it does not fit if you have the conventional chronology, you know, because Jericho was already destroyed when the Israelites would have been ar arriving. But in Roll's revision, Jericho is actually destroyed at the perfect time because right after the, you know, the, uh, this site in Navarus is abandoned or around the same period, you know, you, you have the traveling in the desert and stuff like that. Uh, but that is when you actually have the destruction of uh, Jericho. Okay, and after it was destroyed, of course, in the in the biblical story, I want to say Joshua puts like some kind of curse on it, you know, that it, it shouldn't be inhabited, and whoever inhabits it, you know, uh, I, I, what is it like? Their sons will form the their sons' blood will be the mortar or something. I forget exactly what it was, but Jericho actually goes totally uninhabited for around six hundred years afterwards. Right, there's no one living there whatsoever. Um, so this is a lot more consistent. This revision actually makes the biblical story, even if you're not, you know, if you totally, you don't believe the supernatural aspects of the Bible or something like that, it at least brings things into the realm of historical plausibility. And I will just say, you know, on this topic, right, you know, let's say, let's say you're, uh, you're a fedora tipper and, you know, you don't care about the Bible being true or not or whatever. Um, but, you know, there is this kind of higher realm or I guess a higher standard a lot of times that um, modern Europeans put on the, the uh, I guess, the, the stuff in the Bible. I mean, to put it this way, if we dig up some cuneiform tablets that have mythological elements to it or, you know, we have like the Epic of Gilgamesh. You know, modern people will usually assume, even though there are going to be mythological or, or there are going to be mythological elements to any kind of early story, you more or less assume that a lot of the historical events are things that probably happened, right? So if two kings are fighting and then there are like supernatural elements, you might still assume that the two kings are historically real. But I think recently, and then, I mean, this is really something that started during the period of critical scholarship back in the 1800s and early 1900s. Uh, in the Bible where, you know, people had this idea, well, eh, the Bible doesn't line up with this and that. So all the stuff in the Bible is probably just made up. They all made it up. You know, Abraham's made up. Moses is made up. Jacob, Isaac, uh, you know, uh, Joseph, they're all made up. All the kings of classical, uh, you know, the classical, classical, ugh, classic kingdom, uh, you know, including Saul and David and Solomon, they're all made up. Like someone, when the Israelites are, you know, when the, uh, when they were in Babylonian captivity, they just made the entire Bible up. All the lore, they just invented it whole cloth, right? Um, and that is actually called usually biblical minimalism. The idea that the Bible is like a uniquely bad historical document, you know? Like the, the stuff that the Bible talks about, 
uh, impartially, I, I think it honestly is partially like owning your dad kind of thing. Like, ha, I'm sticking it to these people who believe in the Bible, frankly. Because again, like th- these are not the standards that are held for any other document, right? Uh, because a lot of things in the ancient world are just full of mythological and supernatural elements. And if you you've if you throw out everything that has those things, or you say, oh, it doesn't really fit, then we're not going to have any ancient history, frankly. So, you know, one of the things that's a little refreshing about Roll is he makes the sense. Now, Roll, actually, I should say, is not like a Christian. Um, uh, he's He doesn't, like, have some religious motivation. And I guess when we get to the Greek stuff, you'll see that, you know, he obviously talks about things that aren't just, uh, um, you know, having to do with, uh, you know, the Bible or something like that. He really just has the intuition, and I think this is sort of a correct one, that mythology in itself um, is always going to have historical elements to it. I mean, if you if someone makes up a myth about, you know, George Washington, you know, cutting down a cherry tree, that doesn't somehow mean that George Washington doesn't, does, didn't exist. Or if someone said that, like, or, well, people do say that, like, Hitler was half Jewish and had one testicle, those stories might be totally absurd, and they might be made up for, you know, obvious political reasons, but that doesn't mean that Hitler himself didn't exist, right? So anyway, I mean, that's sort of why I find Roll's perspective a little refreshing, because he's realistic enough to say that a lot of the stuff that's in mythology that's not there for some obvious moralistic or political or rhetorical purpose, it's probably going to be based in some kernel of truth, in some historical reality, And I think it's very silly to just assume that everything in the Bible is just going to be historical noise. Even if you are an utter dyed-in-the-wool atheist, uh, it's it's sort of a a silly thing. And, you know, even in mainstream chronology, there's stuff like this all the time. Like people have forever, you know, in this sort of historical critical uh, mindset or this, you know, debunker skeptic mindset. Oh, well, we have no evidence for, let's say, King David whatsoever. Therefore, you're an idiot to believe in him or stuff like that. Now, firstly, we do have evidence for stuff like that. The Bible itself constitutes evidence, even if you think that the supernatural elements are nonsensical. But also, you know, in history, the thing that people need to realize is that evidence is not the default. Like, because someone existed doesn't mean they're going to have their name written everywhere. In the case of actually King David, even mainstream scholars, there is at least uh, one place. I want to say it's, uh, is it Egyptian? There are a couple places where there is some attestation of the House of David uh, it, that is accepted by mainstream scholarship. Where, of course, for years they were like, oh, well, there's no evidence, so that means that I'm not going to believe in it. That is a very silly way to look at it, frankly. In reality, you got to look at a lot of this stuff in the Bible or you know, the Iliad or the Odyssey and all this kind of stuff. And even if you don't think there's some religious truth to it, you have to at least be realistic that a lot of these figures are going to have some, they're not just confabulated. They're not just entirely made up. It's not like an entire society just created this mythos out of nowhere. Okay. Now, anyway, Roll also, um, one other piece of evidence or I guess panoply of evidence that Roll looks at is a series of correspondences between, uh, I, I want to say, it, it might have been Ramses II, right? Uh, well, anyway, they're called the Amarna letters. I forget exactly. Uh, I, I think it might be a Ramses correspondence. You'll have to look it up. You can, you know, if you want, whatever. But uh, now remember in the traditional dating scheme, the exodus occurred during Ramses II in the New Kingdom. So this is you know, later in Egypt, this is actually a pretty good period for Egypt. 
Um, and of course, the idea that the the Israelites escaped from you know Egypt, they exited Egypt at this period. There's not really any attestation for it. It doesn't match with Jericho and stuff like that. But in Roll's revised chronology, the uh, Israelites leave in the Middle Kingdom period, and in the period of Ramses II, there is actually these, you know, these Amarna letters, which actually talk a lot about the different kings in Canaan and stuff like that. Now, specifically, there is a king, uh, or kind of a Canaanite king called Labiah, and Labiah, that's L-A-B-A-Y-A. Oh, I don't know why I spelled that out. It's how it's, you know, it's how it's pronounced. <laughs> uh, and Labiah is interesting because um, Roll actually says, well, Saul, which is a given name anyway, okay, it's a, it's a title. Uh, we don't actually know his, like, really real name. Um, Saul is probably this figure, Labiah, and that is for multiple reasons. They have a similar biography. They're, you know, they're both talking uh, in the letters, um, in the Amarna letters. He's talking about dealing with, you know, Hebrew rebels and the, in the, uh, in the same way that Saul was dealing with David and stuff like that. Uh, they have a son of the same name, and uh, actually Labiah, like David, or like his conflict with David, uh, actually talks about his own son, uh, you know, I guess sort of, uh, you know, being in cahoots with the enemy. So if you remember the biblical story, uh, Saul has a son named Jonathan, who is an, a constant advocate and friend of David, okay? Uh, and th so all of this stuff in the Amarna, the Amarna letters, if you identify Labiah with Saul, all this stuff kind of sounds a little plausible, all right? Um, so that that's another little piece that Roll uses, and there are others as well. You can look up. Actually, I should I haven't mentioned it yet, but there's um, not surprisingly, you know, given that a lot of this stuff kind of vindicates a lot of the Bible stories and stuff like that. Um, there was some evangelical boomer. I forget his name. Uh, he did like a, a documentary series on Roll's ideas and stuff like that. Not just Roll, but other historians that are sympathetic to a, a revised chronology that's, you know, more sympathetic, I guess, to the biblical stories. It's called um, Patterns of Evidence. There are actually, I want to say three documentaries, like one on like maybe the Exodus, one on like maybe Moses writing the the Pentateuch or something like that. I, I forget exactly. But, you know, they're not exact. They talk about Roll's work. It's sort of for a boomer audience, obviously. It's not really, like, that scholarly, to be honest. But I don't know. If you're bored, you can. there are torrents of them out there. You can find them if you want. Uh, but it's it's very boomer. It's it, I don't know how. The, the boomer guy who, I forget his name. I should, I want to say it's like Mahoney, okay? This guy actually got interviews with, like, the president of Israel and stuff like that. I don't know why he wanted to interview the president of Israel, but, you know, whatever. That's a big get for a random, you know, American boomer. Uh, anyway, so you can check those out. If, or if you want to, you know, if you want to introduce your mom to uh, revised chronology and she's like, a you know, uh, kind of a boomer conservative Christian, that might be the best way to get into it. But anyway, so I, I, I think that's about enough for the biblical side of a lot of the stuff that Roll is saying. And I want to talk a little bit about the Greek and the Roman stuff, because I did mention at the beginning that this doesn't just bring Genesis into the realm of his historicity. It also brings a lot of Greek lore, at least in the, the idea of role, into historicity as well. Uh, I'm going to take a brief break, and like other episodes of Not Related, I'm going to read some, uh, uh, I guess, comments from people of previous episodes, which I've been, you know, of course, since it's been like a year since I've done an episode, I will read literally like year old uh, comments on stuff, but uh, we'll see. We'll look at a couple of those and I'll be back in just a minute or a second for you because I'm not going to put it in a bumper audio or something. <laughs> 
All right, welcome back after that, you know, momentary break. <laughs> um, now, firstly, um, not related. Usually what I do, for those who are new, is I read donations and comments from previous episodes. I will go ahead and say this. I have a new scheme to incentivize myself to make more episodes because I want to do more episodes. I just, dude, I have so many things that I'm working on. It's ridiculous. Like every little project. When you have a million Git repos that you're not working on and a million little projects, hey, you get sidetracked. Because you always have something to work on, frankly. But I want to do more not related. So here's what I've done. Go to donate.notrelated.xyz. Now, uh, I recommend, I will read any donation give given there unless it's just spam or something like that. So please give donations there. Again, donate.notrelated.xyz. And here is, here is the plan. There is a, um, there's an option there to give a monthly donation. And here's what I'm going to say. I suggest everyone who wants to see more of this podcast give, go ahead and put a monthly donation. It can be $5, it can be $20, it can be $100. I don't care. It can be $1,000. Actually, I'd like $1,000 a month. But here's the deal I will only, uh, you know, process the monthly payments if I do two episodes in the previous month. Okay, that is going to be the deal. That is going to incentivize me to do more. So you can give a one time donation, uh, you can give a monthly donation. Um, but the monthly donations, that is just to incentivize me. So, Hey, if I get lazy, if you want to give 20 bucks a month, um, you know, and give a comment now, go ahead and do that now, put it down for a monthly and, uh, it'll incentivize me to do more. And if I don't, if I'm lazy, like I was last year, I'm sorry about that. I, again, got a lot of stuff to do, but you will not be charged for any of that. So don't worry that, you know, about that. So that, that is the force me to do podcast episodes. And frankly, I'd rather do this than do YouTube. Um, and I might, you know, I was talking before, one of the reasons I haven't done, a, a lot of people noticed that I sort of did uh, uh, not related mini episodes, right? That's what people were calling them, where I do like a 10 minute video on a d- different topic. And I'm thinking, I don't know how people feel about this, but I'm thinking about just making uh, the podcast a little shorter, like maybe closer to around then. Because when I started, it was, I'm going to talk for a whole hour. I'm going to talk about the content, review donations, then, you know, talk more about it. But uh, there are probably a lot of things that I could s- sneak into 10-minute episodes or 20-minute episodes if I shortened it a little bit. Uh, so if you have any opinion on that, go ahead and give that in a donation or, or something like that. Um, anyway, I'll go ahead and read, uh, you know, a couple old donations from, uh, or comments and uh, donations from uh, a million years ago. Um, all right. Mikolai says, other thing is that in the latest not related, you stated that Tractatus Logico Philosophicus of Wittgenstein was written in a cabin. Well, actually, he did write actually, uh, Ludwig Wittgenstein wrote TLP in the trenches of the first world war while exchanging quite erotic love letters with Bertrand Russell. The work was written by the work, which was written by him in the cabin was philosophical investigations, which basically makes entire TLP a joke. Wittgenstein considers it a meme he made to show how dumbass logical positivists were. Yeah, sorry, I did get that mixed up. I remembered he see Wittgenstein, for those who don't know, we talked about him and how much I hate logical positivism. Um, But he only wrote like for being so famous, Wittgenstein only wrote two things, the TLP and the the PI philosophical investigations, but yeah, I guess I got it mixed up. Okay, you got me. Uh, I've been debunked there. Um, uh, Alvaro says hi, uh, hi Luke. I really enjoyed this episode. I'm an ex academic on the field of physics. Everything resonated with what I experienced during my time as a researcher. Fun fact: 
I met a long time ago uh, Toft. That, that's a guy. I think I read his uh, article against quote unquote pseudoscience uh, in that. We exchanged a couple mails uh, as I was very much a fan of his work, i.e. a cuck. He seemed like an okay guy. Looking back at his career, I recognize he was sort of the equivalent of Chomsky of the theoretical physics field. I'd like to hear sometime on one of your streams or podcasts what solutions you would propose to get back to a more amateur spirit of sciences. Well, I actually mentioned in this episode, you know, Roll is a good example of a guy who, um, he his work is not totally dismissed by mainstream uh, archaeology and Egyptology, but he isn't actually working in the university system. He created his own institute and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, the pro there, there's sort of, you know, I've said a lot of bad things about institutional science because it's it's honestly really bad and people not in it don't, don't understand how bad it is. Um, but the important thing to me is there needs to be, there need to be institutions outside of mainstream academia that also apply some degree of rigor. Now, actually, in today's episode, when I'm talking about Roll, um, there are a lot of things that Roll has claimed. Well, we might get to, into some of this in the Greek portion of what he says. But I think a lot of it needs, um, like, a lot of it is just real, like, very wide connections he's making. Very, uh, I, I don't know, connections that I don't necessarily feel are very rigorous or principled or you know maybe maybe it's just because you know some so many people have been blind to this uh revised chronology and it solves so many problems but there's a lot of this stuff that I think it's him sort of I don't want to say tr twisting the facts but you can make yourself believe a lot of stuff so what I'm saying in this is that I think that there needs to be uh a, definitely an alternative like you can't operate in the university system right now and do serious uh, world-changing, like, uh, you know, revisionary work that is going to change things. Because the way that institutional science works is that is it is all about, you know, I, I sort of talked about this in the Fiera Band episode. You know, it's all about um, we have already reached the correct conclusions and we are just making positivistic changes. We're just making minor tweaks to the theories that we already have. And the peer review system is something that naturally reinforces that. And that's why it's so dangerous. So we need people to be independent of that, but we also need them to have a, a, a level of rigor, a level of buzzkill, um, because a lot of people have a tendency in and outside of academia to use statistics and other things inappropriately. And when I look at someone like Roll, or someone else who's, I, I would say, is outside, totally outside of mainstream scholarship, uh, or at least they don't like him. You know, I think he, he has gotten more sane over the years. But one other guy out there is Graham Hancock, okay? And Graham Hancock is a really good example of this. And I've thought about doing episodes on his theories, which are usually lambasted as being, oh, that's pseudoscience, that's pseudo-archaeology, dude. You can't, you can't think that, because he basically believes in Atlantis, okay? Um, and he's, he, he definitely writes like not a scientifically serious kind of guy. Um, but I, I really think that people like him, they, they are visionary and their ideas need to be taken seriously. Um, but uh, they need to have some degree of rigor that they're putting in there. You know, mainstream science sort of thinks of themselves as being rigorous 
really just by having their own preconceived notions that they, you know, meticulously adhere to. And they screw up the same kind of things that someone like Graham Hancock would screw up. Except for Graham Hancock, like he has no reason, he, he has no reason to bow to anyone because he's, he's just writing for a popular audience. We need an in-between between that. And I think Roll has done part of this. Roll does have, you know, his own kind of institute. Um, but, you know, it's something that will develop gradually. I think the university system is totally dead. But, you know, you know, there's hope for some other stuff. All right. Um, let's see if there's any other. I got. A, I had written a bunch of other internet uh, donations down, but most of them are not related to, uh, um, you know, not related, I guess. So, uh, oh, here's $50 from Live You. Hey, Luke, excellent content. Have you done any research around the mother goddess concept? What are your thoughts on it? Do you see a correlation between cultural and technological advancements across time and the shift toward a masculine god figure? I think the whole mother goddess stuff, the whole chalice and blade stuff, um, I think it's just like the the evidence for it. I mean, this is actually a good example of what I was just talking about um, uh, because I, I think it's one of those things where people find one or two pieces of evidence for something and they just draw really wild, unjustifiable conclusions for them. Now, I'm all for that in general. Like, you know, I think that people should, you know, be animated by new theories. But I think in the case of the Mother Goddess stuff, it's just all like, oh, here's a fat statue in old Europe. Therefore, people worshipped a Mother Goddess. Therefore, like, societies were different and, like, there was, there was no violence. Ignore all the evidence that is contrary to that. I think that's a good example of something that, I mean, in academia that did sort of exist in the 60s and 70s, but it was more of a political thing. It was just sort of, you know, here's the kind of crazy stuff that you can say and get away with. Um, but, you know, again, I, I think people need to be allowed to think in that direction. I just don't think in that particular case there's good evidence for it. Um, I've actually done a blog post a long time ago about Maria Gimbutas, and she's a very good example of this. She was sort of a mother goddess you know, she was inspired by this mother goddess idea to suppose that, you know, paleo Europe was entirely peaceful. And she, because of her, you know, crazy conspiracy theory, her, un, you know, baseless, you know, silly view of history, it actually did inspire her to do very good and serious archaeological work. And it's been her work on Indo-Europeans that has now totally redefined how we, uh, you know, we now think of Indo-Europeans as being sort of, is coming from north of the Black Sea, right? Uh, based on our, you know, Kurgan hypothesis and stuff like that. So it's a good scientific theory, but she's believing it for, you know, kind of silly reasons. And the point that I'm making, and the point actually that Fayeraban makes, you know, when, when we did the episode on, on him, is that, you know, academics and researchers need to be allowed to believe crazy things for crazy reasons, right? Um, now, Roll isn't a Christian, but we need to have an environment where there are fundamentalist Christians who are you know, looking for evidence of the Bible, even though they have no reason to think it's there. We need people like Maria Gambudas looking for evidence of like, uh, you know, a peaceful European society conquered by evil Indo-Europeans, you know, because that's what she believed, because that will inspire more work. Or we need people like Graham Hancock to, you know, believe that Atlantis existed in North America uh, because that will, all of this will inspire a new kind of works. You know, that, that's my view. That's Fayeraban's view. And I think it's really unfortunate nowadays that you have these kind of skeptics, these odious people called skeptics, which they're really just like buzzkills all the time. They're like, no, you can't, you can't imagine any idea outside of 
peer-reviewed science um, when really, you know, there is no, I mean, the thing that I sort of alluded to in the Fireband episode is like, or really, the, frankly, the statistics episode uh, that I did on that is that, dude, mainstream science, they do everything wrong. Like even things basic as statistics, they do systematically wrong in a way that is just egregious. Um, so anyway, I'm sort of uh, ranting at this point uh, or just going on. But uh, anyway, let's get back to Roll and the revised chronology. So how does Roll's new chronology affect Greek mythology? Okay, we've already seen that it's actually brought a lot of the Bible stories into the realm of historical plausibility. Can it do that with Greece? Is it going to help us with some things? Well, let's go ahead and look at it. Now, Roll originally, of course, published... The, the original stuff he was famous for is more of the biblical stuff. So back in the 90s, he actually wrote a book... I want to say it's called uh, Test of Time, The Bible from Myth to History, okay? And, you know, that's it perks people's ear, ears up or whatever. Um, more recently, and when I say more recently, I mean like the late Bush administration, but uh, uh, he published The Lords of Avaris, and that's actually the first book of his I've read. Um, and it is more on Greece and stuff like that. And I, I do feel, I will go ahead and say that um, a lot of his stuff that is more Bible-related that, you know, it's not universe. His chronology, of course, is not like accepted by the majority of, you know, historians or something like that. But it, it now has a growing acceptance. But I do feel like a lot of the Greek stuff is a little more, ooh, it's a little more speculative. Okay, I'll just say that. Either way, the Lords of Avaris came out. Um, and uh, I, I guess before I should, I should probably give a background of Greek mythology because I think a lot of people are familiar with Bible stories. They're familiar with, I don't know, the coat of many colors and Moses and the Exodus and maybe Joshua and Jericho and stuff like that. Um, but I think the Iliad and the Odyssey, I don't know, frankly, people don't even know this stuff anymore. I, I didn't know anything about the Trojan War before I was an adult anyway. Um, so I'll go ahead and give you a maybe instead of a 30 second summary, maybe like a two minute summary. Okay, let's talk. What is the Trojan War? Why is it mythologically important for Greece? Um, the story goes basically as follows. Um, there is a place called Troy, uh, and that is in northwestern Anatolia. And I will go ahead and say people for many centuries thought that Troy was just a big myth until a man named uh, Heinrich Schliemann actually found the place. Um, and it was called in its, you know, they spoke a language called Luvian, which is actually an Anatolian language, which, uh, which is a sub-branch of, branch of Indo-European. Uh, and the, play, the name for the place in Luvian was uh, Wilusa. Wilusa is related to the Greek word Ilios, or, you know, which is where we get the word Iliad from. The Iliad is like the region around Troy. Uh, so this isn't just like fanciful. This is like a real place. So anyway, uh, what is the Trojan War? Well, uh, one of, according to the legend, one of the princes of Troy, whose name is Paris, abducted, and he did with the help of, you know, the, god Af the, the goddess Aphrodite, he abducted the most beautiful woman in the world, uh, who is uh, the wife of the king of Sparta, whose name was Menelaus. That's the um, king. And so Helen of Troy, as she's called, she I mean, she's really Helen of Sparta. She comes from Sparta. But Paris abducts the beautiful Helen of Troy, takes her back to Troy. And when the Greeks find out, they are, of course, very incensed. And they all ally under uh, the high king Agamemnon to go and, you know, get Helen back from Paris. Okay, Paris meaning Troy, <laughs> not not Paris, France. <laughs> Paris, the guy who lives in Troy. 
So um, the greatest, I guess just to tell you the characters as well, the greatest of all the Greek warriors is Achilles. He's a highly arrogant, highly skilled, uh, semi-divine character. Uh, and the greatest of all the Trojan warriors is a man named Hector. And Hector, Hector is a much more honorable and selfless man than Achilles. But uh, Achilles will end up defeating Hector and killing him. But part of the, st the story of the Iliad is sort of the... Uh, I don't want to say the rivalry between these two figures, but it's partially Achilles becoming less of an arrogant guy when he eventually uh, kills Hector. He humiliates him uh, and his family by, you know, taking him in his chariot, you know, dragging him behind, going around the city. But, uh, you know, Achilles does sort of feel guilty and eventually surrenders the body and, you know, they give him a proper burial and stuff like that. That's part of the story of the Iliad. It's partially about, you know, how hot-tempered Achilles is. Um, but... Uh, Anyway, so this the Iliad is only takes place before the actual uh, storming of Troy. That happens, you know. There's there's not like a, a direct attestation of what happens, but we all know the story of the Trojan horse. Uh, that is the you know lore associated with it. Um, of course, uh, the Greeks create this horse and hide soldiers in it and pretend that it's a gift for Athena or something like that. When in reality, the Trojans actually take the horse into their city and the Greek soldiers come out, open the gates and, you know, they kill the Trojans and, you know, seize the city and burn it all and stuff like that. And uh, many of the Trojans escape. Um, and uh, Odysseus, one of the, actually the guy who comes up with the idea for the Trojan horse, um, after leaving, he upsets Neptune. I, I believe he destroyed some kind of, uh, how did he originally upset ne Neptune? I want to, or Poseidon, I should say, because, you know, Neptune's the Roman name. Uh, he upsets Poseidon, I want to say destroying some kind of statue, but uh, uh, he, trying to, he tried, of course, to get back to uh, his home, but gets lost at sea for 10 years, and that is the story of the Odyssey. It's the story of Odysseus getting back. Um, so, the Trojan War, that, that is how it happened, and I will say that there are all, there's also Roman lore about it. So, the Romans... This is usually thought that, uh, well, I guess the I guess the mainstream view is that the Romans wanted to tie themselves to Troy, and there's no evidence that they actually come from Troy. But uh, you know, uh, Virgil, uh, who wrote the Aeneid, created the story about this fig this guy named Aeneas, who comes from Troy. He's a descendant of Troy who escapes the wreckage and goes to found Rome, or at least move into the Italian peninsula and his ancestors, or his descendants later found Rome. So long story short, that's basically the story of the Trojan War, okay? Now, the tricky thing for Greek history is most Greeks thought of the Trojan War as being not too, I mean, there are mythological elements, but it wasn't that long ago, okay? Um, specifically, nowadays, we modern uh, chronology, modern history has inserted this extra era in there. That is, we have the legendary era of the Iliad and the Odyssey and all this stuff happens. Then there's a Greek Dark Age, okay, for 350 or so years. And then you have events like the Dorian invasion, these people invade Greece, uh, and then historical Greece you know, begins, the Athens that we uh, know, you know, the Sparta that we know, these, these, the classical Greece as we know it comes to existence. Now, um, this 350 years, that should kind of ring a bell if you're familiar with Roll's chronology, because that's just about the number of years that he wants to cut out of the chronology, that he says, you know, the, the, the reason people have posited this dark age 
is actually because in Egypt, well, due to how we date the Egyptian pharaohs, you ha you, we have all these extra pharaohs, these 350 years of extra time. And since we're dating everything together, uh, if we have all this extra time in Egypt, well, we have to say, oh, well, I guess it, it happened in Greece as well. They were just doing nothing. So for this period, you know, in modern, the old school, uh, you know, mainstream uh, chronology of Greece, there's a legendary period. There's the Iliad and the Odyssey and all these other kind of mythological figures that I haven't mentioned, but there are many other ones, you know, uh, Midas and uh, the Minoan civilization and all this kind of stuff. Um, there's the, the mythological realm of Greece. Then there's this 350 years per year period. And then there are the, there's the historical period. Okay. Now, Roll says this is totally wrong. We, there's no archaeological evidence about for the Greek Dark Age. Okay, that's the thing about a Dark Age. A lot of the time, you know, if you look at a lot of chronological revision, uh, especially people who are getting rid of time periods, most of the, the time they are just getting rid of quote-unquote Dark Ages, and they're saying that they don't exist. I might talk about, uh, what is it, Gunnar Heinsen's um, chronological revision, he actually takes 700 years out of the first millennium and says it didn't happen. Uh, you know, all this dark age time, but it's, it's the same thing here. Roll basically, I mean, the thing about a dark age is that it's a period where, well, I guess people weren't like leaving evidence of them existing, uh, which could very much be a theoretical artifact. It could just be you, um, you know, we've just calculated dates wrong and there is no period. So Roll suggests that really the, there is no breakup between mythological so-called Greece and classical Greece. And he has a lot of evidence for this uh, and a lot of reasons for thinking that. One, firstly, if you look at all classical Greece, um, a lot of them will have kings lists. They will have very specific uh, lists of kings and rulers in Sparta and in other places. And they will say, well, I am so many generations from this historical hero, or these are the, the, these are the generations that come from that point. And of course, in conventional chronology, you have to just say, oh, it's all mythological. It's all nonsense, right? Because, you know, you have something, you have, Roll does the math. It's something like, you know, if you look at the Spartan generations, it's something like everyone has to be like 45 years per generation, which is just not feasible. It's not that these kings are giving birth to sons when they're 45 on average, some of them even older. Um... But if you say that there is no Greek Dark Age, actually all of these genealogies become very, I don't know, very sensible. They become people having children within 20 or so years. That's something much more sensible. Um, so that, that is one of the things that Roll talks about. Uh, the Greek Dark Age is kind of a big problem because there's no evidence of it, quite literally by definition of being a Dark Age. And most Greek sources that are talking about generations and they're talking about genealogies, there's just absolutely no awareness of this period. It, it's sort of a, a weird thing. Now, I wanna go back to the archeological site that we mentioned when talking about the Israelites, and that is Avaris. Again, this is in Egypt, and this is the place where Roll supposes that the Israelites lived while they were in Egypt. And indeed, there is overwhelming consensus, even in mainstream scholarship, that there is a Canaanite population living in this area. Now, additionally, this, po this population leaves the site around the period that Roll suggests that the Israelites left Egypt. But the other interesting thing, again, in mainstream chronology as well, 
is that there is another group of some uh, kind of Semitic people, Canaanite people who move into the region. Uh, and these are called the Hyksos. And the Hyksos, the interesting thing about them is they actually come to rule Egypt. They basically invade. They come into the place. They take over this emptied out area of Avaris. Uh, and they use that sort of as a capital to spring an invasion of Egypt. And they take over, you know, all of uh, lower Egypt and maybe a little more. And there are civil wars in essence. And a lot of the dynasties of Egypt, which are considered illegitimate by the Egyptians, uh, themselves, but a lot of the dynasties have these foreign kings. Now, here is Roll's other claim, and this is where things get really okay. This is pretty intense, okay? And you also, honestly, I recommend people to read Lords of Avaris, read it multiple times. The first time it won't make any sense because it's like, oh my goodness, there's so many names, so many, so much crazy connection to all this mythological stuff. Um, but here's Roll's suggestion the Canaanite people who are the Hyksos, they're not just Canaanite. He supposes that they have, in essence, a, an Indo-European ruling class, or at least part of their ruling class is Indo-European. Now, there's some physical evidence for this because, uh, as, he, as he mentions in the book, there is kind of Minoan and other kind of Greek-like uh, artifacts and stuff like this. So you seem to have some kind of Indo-European culture there. Um, but additionally, in the region of the Middle East, it's important to remember when the Indo-Europeans came in, they didn't like supplant populations in the Middle East. A lot of times they actually came to rule over them and would adopt their practices and would sometimes put their practices on the people they ruled. For example, a common, uh, well, the Hittites are one good example. They're an Indo-European people who actually ruled over some non-Indo-European people who were there beforehand. They came in, they installed themselves as rulers, and that was that. The Mitanni are another example. They were a little bit maybe in northern, kind of eastern Syria or northern Iraq. What we, you know, I guess upper the upper Mesopotamia, Mesopotamian, uh, the Mitanni were an Indo-European group that again ruled over non-Indo-European people, um, and it's very clear that these people are Indo-European. We actually have attestation of their language, and it's not just Indo-European; it's actually specifically Indo-Iranian, or actually Indo-Aryan specifically. That means you know a language family that's similar to the languages of the Indian subcontinent specifically. So it's like something very similar to Sanskrit, okay? Um, so there seems to be a common theme in the Middle East during this period that a lot of Indo-Europeans move in and they install themselves as rulers. Maybe they're not always the rulers, but they uh, are often kings or some kind of, I guess, higher, uh, you know, I, I guess they're higher class people in a lot of, situations. They're not fully moving Indo-European populations. And I will say, when it comes to Indo-Europeans, there are a million things to talk about them. Like, how did they even uh, move throughout Europe? Was it cultural diffusion? Was it, you know, them killing people? There are a bunch of questions. We won't talk about that now. Just know in the Middle East, a lot of times they install themselves as elites and you keep the other populations. Now, Roll's claim is that the Hyksos who again move, who are definitely, they definitely have a Canaanite component. They are Canaanite people. They are Canaanite, you know, and sort of Semitic people. Um, uh, Roll's claim is that these people have a kind of Indo-European Greek side to them, okay? And he actually goes even further and says that the, uh, the biblical Philistines, and the, the biblical Philistines, everyone sort of wondered, okay, are these guys like some kind of Indo-Europeans? Roll says that he thinks that they are. And the Philistines are attested before and after 
the uh, Israelites sojourn into Egypt. So they're actually there before. Uh, and, of course, the you know later conquest and stuff, the Israelites will be fighting the Philistines again. Now, Roll's claim is that during this period, before they, the Hyksos move in, there is a Greek aristocracy or Indo-European aristocracy. We don't necessarily want to tie it down to being Greek specifically, but so a culturally Indo-European group that comes into that region in the same way that the Mitanni or the Hittites do and kind of install themselves as rulers. And as the Israelites move out and they begin conquering Canaan, these people call, that the Egyptians called the Hyksos move into Egypt and fill the gap where the Israelites left. They take over the old abandoned Israelite cities. Uh, and of course, they begin making war with Egypt and conquering parts of it. Okay. Now, the thing, the part of Roll's chronology where it gets really heavy, and I'm gonna, I, I'm gonna have to leave out a bunch of details because it's like so deep, and it's like, oh man, like the the connections he makes are crazy. Um, but during this period, the the second intermediate period, I, I think it's called, um, there is a war between the Egyptians and the Hyksos, and Roll's claim is that a lot of mythological figures, let's say the uh, the figure of Io who is an, a princess who is abducted. And of course, in the traditional story, Zeus is involved and all this kind of stuff. He alleges that Io is actually a historical figure. It's actually a, a female pharaoh, Ahotep, okay? And the story of her abduction and her having children with one man or the other is actually the court history of Egypt during this period. And a lot of the Egyptian pharaohs, he actually specifically relates to Greek mythological figures. He's saying, in essence, the Greek mythology comes from an actually existing uh, Egyptian reality. You actually have this civil war of different kings. And of course, in the Greek myth, this isn't totally disconnected because, uh, you know, according to Greek legend, I, I want to say some of the, the um, what is it? Uh, shoot. Epophis. Okay, that's what it is. That's. Epophis, starting with an E, Epophis. <laughs> um, so this is a Greek mythological figure who is actually a king of Egypt. Okay, according to legend, he founds the city of Memphis, according to legend. And Roll makes the obvious observation that, okay, well, Ahotep's Hyksos son uh, is actually called Apophis with an A, right? That's his Hellenized name. His Egyptian name is a little bit different, but it's still, you know, phonologically similar. Um, so Rawl basically makes a claim that, okay, well, this mythological figure, this is actually something we can tie to something historical. And of course, you go on a couple more generations. Eventually, the Hyksos are kicked out of Egypt. Um, specifically, they, they rule Egypt for quite a period. They're sort of the dominant power. But eventually, the Egyptians come to the point where they have them surrounded in Avaris, and they work out an agreement where you have to leave, Okay. And he goes, uh, Roll actually makes a statement that you can look at a lot of, you know, let's say you go to uh, the Minoan civilization on Crete, and you do see that there's some evidence that it looks like some class of people moved back. They reburied people in old graves. Uh, so it may be that, oh, you actually have people moving back from Egypt and all this kind of stuff. And actually some of the mythological characters, Cadmus is one of them. I think Cadmus, I want to say, is like a great, great grandson of... Uh, Io and Epophis and stuff like this, um, but he was—he's usually mythologically thought of the uh, as the person who brought writing to the Greeks. Now, this would make a lot of sense if he is someone 
coming from this family that's ruling in Egypt, where they have, of course, written language. Um, and this is something that could, you know, be transmitted or something like this. Now, of course, the Greek alphabet, uh, the Greek way of writing um, is, alf- is an alphabetic script. But that actually has something to do... Uh, well, okay, so traditional in the, in the traditional normie view of history, right? So the Greek alphabet obviously comes from uh, the Phoenician alphabet or some kind of Semitic alphabet, um, which, of course, the Egyptian hieroglyphic system is something totally different and much more complex. Alphabets are very simple, or abjads, I guess is the technical word, you know, you know since we're all linguists. Uh, technically, the Phoenician alphabet is not an alphabet. It's an abjad because it doesn't write vowels. Same thing with Hebrew. That's technically an abjad, as is Arabic, which is made later. Um, but it's very obvious that the Greek alphabet came from one of these abjads. Now, Rolls also has some different views on uh, where how writing was invented. Uh, really, he, fo- he moves the focus more to Egypt because his view is that, uh, you know, there's this proto-Sinitic script, which is probably the first of all the kind of alphabets used out there that predates, uh, you know, the Phoenician writing system. And it's called Sinaitic because it actually comes from the Sinai. And Roll has this idea that alphabetic writing actually originated perhaps in this Avaris settlement that actually Hebrews uh, lived in. Um, And then Greeks also got it as well. So his theory is in essence that both Greeks and Hebrews, in their exposure to this other, you know, kind of robust written culture in Egypt, they both are individually inspired, partially, you know, mutually influenced, but they both create alphabetic scripts. Uh, and that's where, you know, the historical city or the historical story of Cadmus bringing writing to the Greeks is actually something based in reality because he comes from this Hyksos family that was present in Egypt being exposed to all this kind of writing. Now, I will make a random aside that I probably should have mentioned before when we were talking about like the Israelites and stuff. Um, I, you know, I mentioned I was watching the documentary that uh, Roll had made with some kind of like, uh, I guess, normie boomer guy. It, it's kind of an apologetic Christian documentary called like Patterns of Evidence. And there are a couple of them. One of them is actually on writing and how, you know, they make the case that basically Moses could have plausibly actually written the Pentateuch. Okay. And that is something that Roll has sort of claimed. It's a plausibility. Like you could have actually had writing at this period. Um, And one of the things they focus a lot on, which I I think is totally a waste of time, I think it's an argument that, uh, you know, people don't know. I'll just say this. A lot of people think that there's a big division between Phoenician and Hebrew and Aramaic and all these kind of Western Semitic dialects. And in in reality, they're very, very similar. And, you know, when we find written evidence of one of them, it's not always really clear what's going on there. I mean, nowadays we have the Hebrew script. Okay, or there is something we you can look up on Wikipedia that's called the Phoenician script. But in reality, the divisions between the two and the divisions between the two different languages are not very clear. And in the same way, especially if you take the Bible seriously, Hebrew itself is not going to be like some radically different language at the time of the Exodus. Because obviously the Israelites, I mean, Jacob is Israel, okay? And they are one generation away from him. They didn't magically develop their own language a generation away. And the reality of language in most of these situations is that Phoenician and all of these related dialects, including including Hebrew 
if you want to call it that. They're all mutually intelligible or so close to, you know, just be minorly different, you know, just minor regional differences. They might be very important in the same way that different dialects are, you know, different now, but it's just not a big deal. And in the same way, I think there's a lot of people, they focus on this in this documentary. I'm just going on a totally irrelevant rant, but it is actually relevant for the point because it makes their point stronger. I think if you understand that there is no stark division um, a lot of times between like some obscure Phoenician dialect and some obscure Hebrew dialect thousands of years in the past. That's what I, I want people to get away with. So I, I think it is very plausible and it's not really that different from the mainstream interpretation that um, in Egypt, these Semitic people develop some kind of script and when they move out, or at least some of them move out and then Greeks move in, they, you know, they see how these other people develop the script, which, uh, you know, the, uh, they make the argument. I'm not quite sure how popular or how common this is. This might be mainstream consensus. I'm not sure. But they at least make the argument that a lot of the Phoenician symbols come directly from Egyptian hieroglyphs. They're like, oh, well, this sound is similar to this, so we're going to use that for this sound, you know. Uh, now, Egyptian hieroglyphs, of course, work totally differently. But, you know, that's, a, that's another rant. So anyway, now you sort of have a view of like how Roll views this kind of Greek chronology. Uh, and it does other things as well. If you are revision, so we have the Trojan War and we've now been able to get rid of the Dark Age. That's unnecessary now. And we can now say that a lot of the genealogies of Greeks, the genealogy that the Spartans have, and you know the fact that they trace generations from Hercules and stuff like that, that actually becomes historically plausible if you take out the mythical Dark Age that never seemed to have happened, okay? Additionally, you can relate some mythological figures, so-called mythological figures, to real-world figures who have similar names in Egypt, in the same way that mythological figures are tied to Egypt. And there's actually a lot more that Roll talks about, I'm not going to talk about here, that has to do with uh, Crete and the Minoan civilization. And even things as far along as uh, the Aeneid. I don't know if I mentioned the Aeneid uh, earlier, but, you know, now, I, well, the Romans, many years later, of course, when Julius Caesar almost became emperor and then when Augustus became emperor, um, Virgil, the poet Virgil, wrote a story called the Aeneid, which is basically the uh, expanded universe of the Trojan War that basically tries to tie Rome and specifically the Julian family to Troy, okay? Um, now, a lot of people think nowadays this is totally Virgil's imagination, but Roll also says that if we get rid of the Dark Age and these other things, there is some plausibility that the people who left Troy... Um, could have actually moved to Rome and founded the region. And the big, the, the problem with the, in the mainstream chronology, the reason that doesn't work is because Carthage is, you know, doesn't exist when Troy is destroyed in the mainstream, in the mainstream chronology, right? So in the story of the Aeneid, Aeneas, you know, he, he leaves from Troy, he does a whole bunch of things, but one of the things he does is he ends up in Carthage in North Africa, where he meets Dido, the queen of Car Carthage, and they have a tryst together, and Aeneas has to leave to fulfill his destiny in Rome, and Dido is very upset, and she ends up burning herself on a pyre because she's so mad that the man of her dreams left, okay? And that is supposed to be the story that Virgil creates about the uh, why Rome and Carthage don't get along. Like, Dido curses him and says, you know, we'll always be at war and stuff like that. Um, now, Roll says that actually if you eradicate the Greek Dark Age, if you get those years out, 
Um, it's actually sort of plausible that something like this could happen. In the mainstream chronology, Carthage isn't founded till hundreds of years after the Trojan War is over. So Aeneas would have to be traveling at sea for hundreds of years, which is not plausible. Uh, however, Roll says that it actually gets pretty close. It's maybe, you know, Carthage was maybe founded, you know, 40 years after or something like that. You know, th and that's a little bit of wiggle room, right? It might have been that Carthage was actually founded a little earlier. So the story of Aeneas, even though a lot of times modern historians and classicists will just totally dismiss it. Virgil just pulled it out full cloth. Maybe it's not even based on Roman uh, lore at all. But Roll says, hey, there's even a possibility of something like this. It suddenly becomes plausible. Okay, So even Roman, even Roman mythology has some kind of potential reality. Now, either way, what do I think of Roll's theories? I think that um, I've presented them in a particular order. I think a lot of the stuff he makes, the arguments he makes about the Bible, um, I, I think are pretty strong. I, th I think there's a good case to be made. I think some of the specific arguments... Uh, I mentioned he makes specific arguments about, oh, this house is the one that Joseph lived in or something like that. I think it's sort of a stretch. I think in any of these archaeological sites, you have a lot of degrees of freedom. And if you want to see what you want to see, sometimes your eyes are going to bias you in one direction or the other. But regardless, it does at least make the Genesis story of the sojourn in Egypt and the exodus and the conquest of Canaan it makes them kind of historical realities. I mean, even if you are, you don't care at all about the Bible for religious reasons, you do have to sort of acknowledge, okay, there's a Canaanite people in Egypt at this period. They leave suddenly. You have all these sites destroyed in, um, you know, Canaan later on. So there might be some historical reality to this regardless, even if you don't believe in the specific characters or Moses or something like that. So I think that the, the biblical stuff, if you take Roll's chronology seriously, I think that the, there is a good case to be made for a lot of that. Uh, the Greek stuff, I think, is more disorganized. I think uh, I've only presented very, a very small amount of it. Uh, you should read Lords of Avaris if you want the full picture. Uh, when I've read that book, I read the book, it's like 600 pages, but I somehow read it in like two days. And I'm like, my brain was so burned. There's just so much in it. There's so much to process. I don't think I can really, I think it would take a lot to evaluate a lot of the claims in it. I'll just say that. And there might be Egyptologists who would be, who would readily dismiss some parts or something else. I think he makes a lot of, there are a lot of arguments he doesn't make because um, he thinks they're true, but just they're possible. Okay, so just bear that in mind. Um, but it, it's definitely worth looking at. And in general, I think the idea of tying mythological figures to historical figures is something very interesting. I think it's very plausible. Um, and I, I've omitted some of the stuff he talked about. I mean, he links specific families together uh, and specific, uh, you know, lineages and stuff like that. And that's worth looking at. Um, now, you know, the Roman stuff as well, I think, is just sort of him throwing stuff out. I don't know how serious of a claim it is. Um, but, you know, my, my conclusion from reading this is I think the Greek stuff is at least interesting and some of it could be true. I think the biblical stuff is maybe a little more plausible. Um, and, of course, all of this is tied into a revised chronology, so take it or leave it. That, of course, will require some other things in mainstream history to be revised if you do take that seriously. Now, it might be mostly improvement, but it is kind of an issue. Now, I will say that um, um, also, obviously, there are going to be people who criticize his theories and stuff like that. One of the biggest ones is a guy he actually talks about a lot called Kenneth Kitchen, 
who's sort of ensconced into the, you know, the, the mainstream way of interpreting history. Now, I will say Kitchen is an interesting figure. I, I want to read, I don't know if anyone knows of any, like, uh, organized debunking or purported debunking that Kitchen has created of his theories. I know that he, he criticizes some of them. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to see some of the specific claims of role put to task. I'll go ahead and say that. But, you know, Kitchen himself actually is uh, a Christian. Uh, he criticizes role stuff. Is Well, he thinks actually a lot of the biblical stories are true as well, but they can fit. You know, in fact, I think he is described as a biblical maximalist, uh, believing that, you know, basically all of it's true. But he just thinks it can be worked into the, the mainstream chronology. Uh, so there are critics of his work out there, but, uh, you know, either way. Uh, it's worth, it's definitely worth looking at. I think that his uh, he has a couple talks on YouTube. Uh, uh, Roll does that I think are probably worth looking at. He appears on some podcasts and stuff. And again, he has a couple books you can look it up. Lords of Avaris is the one focusing on Greece or, or like Greek uh, culture. Test of Time, the Bible from myth to history. That's his classic. And I think he made one more recently, like Exodus Myth or History. Uh, I have not read that. That one was only a couple years ago, but you can check it out yourself. Um, now, for those of you who have been watching my live streams, there is another chronological revision thing that I might be doing. I've been talking about it in live streams. So I might do that in a couple more episodes, but um, I'll go ahead and pull this one to a close. And I'll say again, again, I want to do, I'd rather do podcasts than freaking YouTube videos because, you know, they're, they're better. They're, they can be more contentful. You can have people responding and stuff like that. So if you have any, if you want to support the podcast, go to donate.notrelated.xyz. You can subscribe for a monthly donation. And again, you will not be charged unless I produce at least two uh, podcasts in the previous month. But you can also go there to give one-time donations or leave comments and stuff like that. Uh, Bitcoin and Monero are accepted as well. Um, thanks for listening. If you're new, remember to go to notrelated.xyz. Get the old episodes. Listen to them all. They're all good. Um, and I will be, hope, maybe I'll make one of these next week. We'll do a podcast episode next week. Why not? I'm saying it. See you guys next time.